Harris Shulikovsky, violinist, composer, and fan of cosmology. Opus Magnanimus is a project that tells the history of our universe by introducing people who made important discoveries or inventions that enable us to understand our cosmos better. Events and discoveries and the people who are associated with those events are each represented by original music which I have composed or arranged. These pieces of music and songs will eventually become a compilation which will be released to the general public, but you get to hear them first, right as they're being sketched, performed, and produced on this audio podcast. Choosing astronomical or cosmological discoveries for the next episode of Opus Magnanimous is a fun part of the process of creating this podcast, for me at least. Looking back into human history, I like to proceed chronologically from ancient times and then up through history, taking note of great astronomical and related discoveries and inventions. Speaking of time, the measurement of time is, and always was, an important skill set. We speak of, quote, going back in time, unquote, cosmologically speaking, and we like to talk about looking into our future. In fact, a lot of our arguments with each other have to do with predicting what is about to happen and what will happen in the future if we do or don't do such and such. Now, as the subject of time will come up from time to time, sorry, I couldn't resist the pun, I'll squeeze in some of the new composition that I've just finished, which I call Time. Around the same period of history that we explored in the last two episodes, around 2000 to 4000 before the Common Era, we visited the Middle Eastern region known as the Fertile Crescent. And I have found that the ancient Sanskrit writings that were found in India, many of which were actually passed down for many generations, by word of mouth, so they're not actually originally, strictly speaking, written documents. But anyway, they contain observations of stellar objects, stars and such, that were used to create calendars in much the same way that the ancient people from Mesopotamia did. Like the people of the Fertile Crescent, there developed a deep spiritual meaning connected to these writings. In fact, one can't separate the spiritual or religious from the astrological and astronomical conclusions. 
So anyway, we'll explore a bit of the early Indian, or maybe I should say Hindu, astronomy. Follow along my little exploration of music and science and spirit in episode four, Indian Explorations of the Cosmos. First, let's listen to my musical tribute to Indian astronomers, cosmologists, musicians, and creators of Hindu traditions. I call this Indian Science and Faith. It's a working title. According to some of the things I've been reading, now don't get mad at me if I pronounce this wrong, and please, by all means, if you know the correct pronunciations of some of these terms, don't hesitate to write me a little comment below the podcast. Anyway, the Jayotiza Vedanga is the first Vedic text to mention astronomical data, recording events that go back as far as 4,000 before the Common Era. Although many archaeoastronomers, people who 
study ancient astronomy, believe that this uh, Vedanga, this, this Vedic text, might actually be based on things that may have been observed uh, from th thousands of years before that, as far back as about 11,000 before the Common Era. So I came across a great uh, blog called explorable.com. And uh, the section, of course, that I'm interested in today is the forward slash Indian hyphen astronomy. Uh, we'll write all these things down for you at the bottom of the podcast. Don't worry if you don't have to try to remember it. But anyway, they say that, uh, you know, like I mentioned, you know, we were working on looking at Mesopotamia. And a lot of people, of course, are very familiar with early European astronomy and thought, thinking about these subjects. Uh, but the in India, as we've found in other traditions, Indian observers of the heavens observed and wrote things down or took them down in some way uh, very accurately. They, they were careful to really report exactly what they were seeing, and so their observations become good basis for looking at things scientifically. Uh, and also as a basis for uh, mathematics. Um, so these are traditions that have been passed on from the Indian world. Uh, so the Rig Veda is the, are these documents. Uh, it's one of the most important uh, documents uh, that's the basis of Hinduism. Uh, the people from India, the, the I wouldn't call them astronomers because that word, of course, had not yet been invented, but they used stars and planets, again, like people in other parts of the world, uh, to make charts and to make predictions, uh, like reading omens the same way, again, that people in ancient Mesopotamia did. And they figured out some mathematical ways of expressing what they saw, and they developed some theories. And we find that these theories uh, shall we say, trickled down um, to the world of Islam and to Europe as well. 
the Indians divided the year into 360 days. The year was divided into 12 months. Each month had 30 days. Um, Every five years, they would readjust the calendar that they created to match up with what was happening uh, with the sun's cycles. Uh, So the years averaged out to about 366 days, very similar to what we find. So I won't go into great detail about that, but just to say that this uh, Jayotisa Vedanga, this first Vedic text that mentioned all this astronomical data, uh, has these really old references, and uh, they figured out, remember what we said about time, they measured time. And uh, what the author of this blog calls the procession of the heavens. Uh, And they made some theories about the structure of the cosmos, the universe. Um, And uh, a lot of these ideas were, in fact, transmitted between the Indians and the Babylonians, of course, which are the, that's the nation or the people, I should say, that uh, took over, you might say, the Mesopotamian uh, area. Uh, It became known as Babylonia instead of Mesopotamia. The Greeks and the Persians also uh, shared in a lot of this same developing knowledge. Uh, so uh, eventually, uh, these ideas developed into more codified astronomical uh, science, basically. Um, we don't uh, always recognize these great Indian astronomers. Uh, so we'll look again at later Indian astronomers and cosmologists and people that studied these scientific and mathematical ideas. But I like to treat them chronologically. So we'll be visiting with the astronomers that really codified these ideas uh, in the common era, so thousands of years later, in a future episode. For right now, I'd like to look at what these uh, early Indian people... Uh, thought about. Um, It's not always totally clear what's being said in these early documents because they were written down in ancient language and also they're open to interpretation by scholars, what it was they really meant by these writings. 
So there was, uh, going back about 3,000 before the Common Era, I hope I get the pronunciation right, Yajnavalkya was a, you'd call him, you have to call him a scholar. He believed in what they call a heliocentric universe. Uh, so that's like saying that the sun is the center of the universe. Now, of course, in present time, we know that the sun is the center of our solar system, not necessarily the center of the entire universe. But this was, you might call it an advanced idea if you compare it with the idea that some people believe that the earth was the center of everything. Uh, so, but in any case, and these things are, are not easy to uh, really pin down exactly what they meant. Um, also, this fellow, uh, Yajnavalkya, um, also uh, wrote a text called Shatapatha Brahmana. And in this text, he says that he measured how far it is from the earth to the sun, or vice versa, and also the distance from earth to the moon. Um, now, these uh, numbers are very interesting because they, they come close to what we actually know. So there was some really clever observation and thinking about these ideas. Later on, we'll, we will visit with Arabhata, and who was one of the great, um, more modern, he lived in almost 500 in the Common Era, so a couple, several thousand years later. Uh, this person was the first uh, acknowledged great Indian astronomer, the first of numerous ones. Um, he actually proposed this idea that the moon reflects the light of the sun, which was also something that the Greeks kind of thought might be true. So there's a lot of really interesting theorizing that went on. But of course, this is hundreds, no, thousands of years later. And we'll revisit uh, with those fellows later on. So you remember we were talking about measuring time. In the early Indian texts, they talk about a yuga, which is a span of time. So it's a measurement of time. And there's a lot of discussion of how long a yuga is. Uh, and um, it turns out that uh, the application of that span of time really matches up with what the Chinese and Greek uh, cycles 
um, were as a 19 years long. So, so, you know, the question, again, for me that I like to, you know, ponder is, you know, were, were the discoveries of the Chinese and the Greeks uh, really discoveries or did they, as we actually know from what we just said, where they basically borrowed from cultures like the Indian culture, uh, like the Vedic astronomer Lagadha Maharshi, uh, 2,500 years before the Common Era. Um, so this uh, answer is suggested in this uh, very nice little concise uh, blog that I had mentioned, the explorable.com. Uh, and uh, so, the, but the important thing was that they transmitted these ideas back and forth between the Indians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Persians also. Um, so the exchange of theories and ideas and philosophy and stuff was really important to the development of the science of astronomy, um, measuring time. Uh, short. So this yuga measurement was used to measure both short and long uh, times. Uh, an example of a short measurement would be a lunar cycle. Uh, a long measurement, a long yuga would be uh, referring to the major epochs of humanity, which are thousands of years long. Uh, the Hindus refer to four different types of uh, yuga, the kalpa, or the day of Brahma, the manvantara, or the age of Manu, and the pralaya, or pralaya, a period of dissolution, and the yuga cycle, which has four different ages, the satya, the treta, the dvapara, and the kali. So, uh, and, and I urge you to read up. It's very interesting uh, what the belief system was and how it relates to uh, both astrology, you know, so the omens, you know, looking at things and, and making predictions, but also actual astronomy. Now, I'm not a scholar, I'm not a scholar of science. I'm just a fan of science. I'm also not a scholar of Hindu religion. Uh, I'm not an expert. I'm not even an expert in historical research. I've just been doing this uh, and getting these things ordered as a way of introducing you and me, for that matter. I'm enjoying the exploration uh, to these different subjects and hoping that We'll all continue to explore both the history of astronomy and the development of cosmology and also uh, actual, you know, scientific theorizing, you know, the idea that we can study and figure out uh, very complex issues. So, 
you can start with some of these reference materials that I always list under the audio podcast, or you can find your own research as well, of course. Um, so, yeah, we talked about time, the, the challenge of measuring time. So uh, this brings me to another lovely uh uh, the, the website or web page uh, from MIT, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, where they talk about the challenge of measuring time. Um, so this is, you know, it's another problem, and it's related to science and physics. Uh, basically, what they remind us is that people in the olden days, measured time using the sun and the moon. As the Earth turns, we have a day. Uh, it turns around the sun, it gives us a year. Um, it, the way it dances around with the moon, that's a month. Um, and then they used sundials uh, because they could, you know, make a shadow f of the you know, from the sunlight. Uh, and, of course, you know, that doesn't work on cloudy days, but, you know, so neither does solar power uh, in our present time. Um, then they use things like hourglasses, water clocks, um, and, uh, and then they figured out how to make actual mechanical clocks with weights that fall down and gears. And that, you know, my dad used to fix clocks a little bit. And, you know, they're, they're very sophisticated. Um, and they're, they're, they're beautiful things to look at. Uh, but, of course, they wear away. Um, and then as uh, people started understanding the forces of nature, electro, excuse me, electromagnetism and uh, about matter and what it was made of, we were able to get uh, more accurate clocks. Um, so uh, electrons moving through... Uh, fields uh, replace the movement of sand or water. So we, we get better and better. So just like looking into space with better and better and better telescopes, looking at time and getting accurate about time, um, it, it also requires us to develop more and more and more sophisticated uh, advanced techniques or devices that can enable us to become more and more accurate. So how is that relating to my uh, journey to look into the deep past of our cosmos? Well, time and space are as Einstein would tell you, are closely, they're related in, in different ways. They are uh, different uh, things that we need to be concerned of. Um, uh, so uh, in this article that put out by MIT, uh, 
I, I like this uh, little little quote. Um, it, uh, Augustine, who was a, a bishop, um, as supposedly one of his uh, parishioners asked him, what was God doing before creation? And, of course, that's kind of like saying, like, we always want to know what happened before the Big Bang. Similar idea. Augustine thought about answering with a kind of, you know, almost sarcastic. He, he thought in his head he was preparing hell for people who pry into mysteries. But instead, he didn't say that. He actually did take the question more seriously. And he he thought about it and said, what is time? And if no one, he, he, it was clever. He said, if no one asks me, I know what time is, but if I try to explain it, I can't. So, but anyway, uh, the article says that this anticipates um, the study of relativity and quantum theory. So Augustine said, what we measure not is not. So in other words, you, ha- you have to measure things in order to understand the nature of things. Um, what is time? Time is what's measured by clocks. Um, but, you know, this is an interesting subject, and uh, I like to explore and I'm inspired by the study of time and that's why I wrote that little piece called Time.
Now, just going back to our visit with the ancient Indian writers of, of the Sanskrit uh, Vedic texts, um, they also mention in many or some of these texts um, the music that was played and a little bit of the theory behind it because uh, they mentioned well let's let's take a look at the uh, a little scholarly writing um, another little article in an, in a blog called chandravina.com uh, so it's, chandravina by the way is actually the, the name of an instrument that the author of this article actually invented. Um, but anyway, uh, Indian music nowadays is very sophisticated, both melodically and rhythmically. Um, but, you know, it was much simpler uh, in the olden days. Um, th the traditions of Vedas... Ayurveda, science, mathematics, and music, uh, you know, they, they pass them along with oral tradition, as we mentioned before. And, um, and of course, music expresses emotions, and we respond to music and rhythm. And uh, even, even plants and animals seem to respond to music. And uh, the, the first development uh, is, uh, we see it in these early writings that we mentioned before. Uh, there was something called the Sa'ama Veda. Um, they took these uh, words that people took very seriously and they, they would chant these things, like one that was called the Rig Veda, these these become uh, sort of religious chanting. But remember, this was also and by chanting, you know how you can learn um, different things that you need to collect, memorize things by singing them or clapping them in rhythm. It's a good way to teach things using music. And I believe that that's what was done. This is the reason why these traditional texts lived for thousands of years and were passed on. I think they were chanted. And the chants become... Uh, like spiritually important as well because they move people and people attach spiritual meaning to them. So many of these chants were talking about things that people discovered. Um, they were very simple uh, chants. Um, basically, there were like three notes um, and I'm going to play you... Now, I can't compose Indian music that's really legit. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an example of this Rig Veda chant that we can listen to. Yajna cha deva mrutvedam 
Now, once they had these chants, which became more and more sophisticated and, and complicated as history progressed, they also had instruments that were created, percussion instruments like the pakhawaj, the maridangam, the tabla, and the gatam. Those are some of these traditional percussion instruments. And then um, there were also uh, string instruments, and uh, like a f Indian flute, and uh, you know the flute was called the vana. Um, an Indian version of the lute called the vena. They used harps, they used cymbals, they used drums. And the scale that of notes that was used was called a heptatonic scale. So even though you listen to Indian music and it seems to sound very different from Western music, the music of, of Europe and America and places like this, in actuality, as I'm listening to Indian music, I'm finding that there is great similarity in that there are basically eight tones. It's like a scale, very similar to a Western scale, with some basic differences and different stylistic changes or differences. some of the Indian instruments, uh, just a few samples for you to listen to. Jumping to the present era, we see the continuing inventive 
industrious people of modern India, having developed a space program with very important innovations and examples that we really must and do imitate or emulate uh, in in. America, the United States of America, and in other countries as well, uh, they're emulated by scientists and engineers in many uh, countries. It came to my attention, most notably, uh, in the case of Con- excuse me, Chandrayaan number one which was India's first moon mission. Uh, They created an orbiter. It went around the moon and actually made one particular discovery that was incredibly important, and that was that they discovered water on the moon. Whenever scientists, NASA scientists, astronomers, you know, people who study uh, the the planets and and the idea of traveling uh, and trying to detect life, they always say, "Follow the water." This actually became a motto at uh, NASA a little later on. But Chandrayaan number one uh, not only was the first, you know, real uh, big um, accomplishment that really got a lot of attention from the rest of the world in the Indian planetary uh, science program, but it also... Uh, because they were able to detect water with this orbiter, it influenced people all over the world to start looking more seriously at the moon and even as a place that could be uh, lived in. Because if you have water, you you can drink water, but you can also use it if you have large enough amounts to create things like other gases that you can split it into, which can be used to do things like powering rockets to get other places, etc., etc. So, in the year 2008, uh, the Indian PSLV rocket Launched, so they they created both the rocket and also the spacecraft that was on the rocket, the Chandrayaan number one, um, and it orbited the moon successfully. Um, so and they discovered water on the moon. Uh, they um, you know wanted like other countries to become like a superpower. Uh, you know, this is one of the goals of many countries that have space programs. Um, and uh, so the, the Indian, by the way, the Indian space program is called ISRO. They had done satellites already. Um, 
And uh, so this was just a logical sort of follow-on for what they'd already been doing. Um, so uh, actually NASA asked for and got permission to put some of their uh, water-seeking instruments onto the Indian Kondrayan. Um, there was also a radar on board called the Mini Miniature Synthetic Aperture Radar, um, which found the patterns that would come from uh, reflecting... Uh, the signal that you'd get back from, it's kind of like radar. Well, it is radar. Uh, and when you bounce it off of ice, you get a specific signal back. And they put the, they uh, shown these uh, radars, they, they pointed them into the craters on the moon. And, um, and so they were able to use that. Um, and then they also had another NASA gadget called the Moon Mineralogical Mapper, or M3, that could tell the difference between ice, liquid water, and water vapor, uh, depending on how it reflected infrared light. So these are great techniques for determining uh, what you have on a celestial body like the moon. Um, the um, other things that were on that same spaceship, I believe there was a uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, uh, collaborated with India on the SARA, which was used to um, look at hydrogen nuclei in the solar wind and to see how, you know, these uh, protons come from the sun and how they impact, how they hit the moon and get reflected. Um, and then they can use that to, de to determine... Uh, where water and related substances are. Um, they used uh, similar um, techniques or uh, little gadgets on uh, ESA's Bepi Colombo mission that studied Mercury using a similar uh, devices. So... Um, and then, uh, and then India also sent another orbiter to the moon. Um, South Korea sent a lunar orbiter also to look at similar questions. NASA sent their lunar trailblazer uh, that's going to... Actually, it has, I'm not sure if it's gone yet. They, uh, they're going to map out the uh, changes in the water in places where there's sunlight... Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, cool um, devices that, um, some of which were really inspired by the Indian, by ISRO's 
efforts. Um, the other thing that the Indian space program accomplished um, is the fact that they did many, were able to create and to launch uh, programs like this, including their Mars orbiter, um, for tiny amounts of money compared with what we tend to spend on our big, what they call flagship missions. Here in this country, we spend a billion dollars, a couple of billion dollars. Chandrayaan number one cost less than a hundred million. So a tenth of the cost of our big flagship missions. And that was a trendsetter and an inspiration for other countries. And I dare say, probably helped to inspire uh, you know, SpaceX and companies like that to come up with the reusable spaceship idea, which again is a way to save uh, space pro- space uh, discovery programs um, a lot of budget, a lot of money. Why is that important? Because if you can save money, you can do more different projects. You can discover a lot more things if you don't spend all of your taxpayers' dollars in one place. So we'll explore more of this in the next episode. We're going to look at the future in space. We're going to look at different types of telescopes. I'd like to present a little brief history of the the really important modern telescopes. Um, And so in future episodes, we're going to learn about the telescopes that were invented and that laid the earlier telescopes that laid the groundwork for these more modern advanced devices. Um, In order to keep all of the different discoveries, because there have been probably hundreds of thousands of really important discoveries that make it possible for us to understand more about the cosmos, uh, I'm going to take my notes, which I've ordered chronologically, um, and create what I call a telescope timeline. Since I've been researching and developing ideas for a couple of years in preparation for beginning the composition of my musical Opus Magnanimus, I've found a lot of snippets of information about scientists and telescopes and other inventions, and each little article and blog or podcast or book has given a piece of this picture, I think when I'm finished with this magnanimous project, I'll have a pretty comprehensive timeline of discoveries and the people associated with them. I will definitely be publishing this timeline on my Opus Magnanimous webpage, or web pages. I don't know, it might be more than one page, for students and teachers and scholars and others, as hopefully what will become a helpful historical slash scientific guide. Um, And uh, so next episode, we're going to look at this nice little history of telescopes, a brief one, um, and uh, 
it will also compare some of the big space telescopes that are in the news a lot, the, the Hubble, the NGST, and the uh, plans for the Nancy Grace Roman, uh, which will be launched on a Falcon Heavy rocket. Uh, not for a few years, though. This is Nancy Grace Roman will be in 2026 um, and um, is going to make it possible to do a wider field of uh, stellar uh, research. So uh, unlike the current NGST, which was just launched recently, which tends to be really good at focusing in on on individual things that are really, 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 really far away and far long ago, um, Nancy Grace will be able to look at and pinpoint many, many, many different things. And so that field of objects will tell us where to look, and then they can use the NGST to point at those things. So the two telescopes hopefully will be able to be used together to enhance each other's capabilities. So we'll talk more about that next time. Thanks for visiting us. And don't forget, you can always help us out in many different ways. Take a look at our sponsorship, the donor uh, section on the website. Um, give us a like. Uh, leave some comments. Um, and uh, check us out on uh, the shorter versions, uh, the little introductory things on YouTube. And um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. 